Section 24 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Little Miss Clumsy. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Volume 2. Chapter 10. Captain West. Chickets and Mrs. Chickets were what we will call a lower-middle-class London-married disunited pair. So ambiguous and uncertain was the social position and status of the male fraction, for he was something smaller and more insignificant in the opinion of his spouse than the worst half of this inharmonious twain, that he had never arisen to a higher distinction than the appellation of chickets, plain and simple chickets, in the wifely eyes or on the wifely tongue. Chickets' ancestral pride consisted in the glorious recollection and distinction that his immediate forebear had been actively engaged in supplying bovine fluid to the human race, and unto his son and heir, the sole and same and only chickets with whom these pages are at all concerned, descended the paternal honours of his race. In other words, the father of chickets had been a London milkman, and previous to the happy or unhappy day of his union with the present and reigning Mrs. Chickets, who was now the ruling factor of his downtrodden life, chickets secundus, or chickets junior, had been the same. Mrs. Chickett's relations being indefinitely stated to be something in the city, the great gulf which ran between the house of Chickett's, dividing it sharply and widely asunder, was an entity, a reality in which, in a good, round, forcible London English, poor Chickett's the present heard very much more than was consistent with mental peace. As, at the rent Chickets and Mrs. Chickets were willing or able to pay, no London landlord had been found who was inclined to let a house large enough, or wide enough, to contain in peace and harmony these jarring twain, they, in a way, had their establishments apart. Right away in that metropolitan district, between what is known as Maida Vale, Edgware Road, between that and St. John's Wood, there exists a type of domiciliary edifice of which the examples are as plenteous as buds in spring. There is usually a basement or kitchen beneath the ground level, above which there is what is called a dining room, frequently a stuffy and not uncommonly dirty room, lighted by a common inornate window with plain common inornate squares of glass, while above this, up a flight of stairs, the pride of the household, called the drawing-room, is a more or less dingy apartment, before the window of which is built a balcony of ornamental iron work, from which the favoured occupant or tenant of his favoured chamber may on summer evenings, enjoy a striking view of adjacent chimneys and walls. He can also obtain an admirable view of his opposite neighbour's front windows and doors. 
Between this building and the street, an oblong rectangular enclosure surrounded by a high wall is called the garden, but is commonly as much unlike a garden and is usually as bare of vegetable life as the site of Memphis or the Sahara Desert. Only at night from this Sahara waste arise the shrill clarion sounds of defeat and victory, for it is the seat and battlefield of feline war. Without entering more minutely into details, it was in such a domicile as this that Mrs. Chickett's reigned. Around the street corner from this favoured habitation was Chickett's smaller domain, and certainly in Chickett's domain there was more of the garden, much more, than was ever seen in Mrs. Chickett's more imposing domain. From the great financing millionaire, whose ventures and combinations in the commercial world are too often nothing worse or nothing better, nothing less or nothing more than gigantic frauds on the too confiding credulity of the public and devourment of the smaller fry which sail in the commercial sea down to the honest boy in rags and tatters who stands at the street corner and sells an honest bootlace for an honest penny, it is astonishing how many are the degrees and gradations of what is called commerce or business or trade. Round the corner from Mrs. Chickett's mansion, which stood boldly and prominently facing the main road, round the corner in a small front room Chickett's stood. It was a dirty little den, filled with potatoes in baskets and sacks, sticks of celery in bundles, lettuces, milk, eggs, and ginger beer, and at certain intervals, by way of tempting variety, chickets added cheap beef sausages, faggots, and saveloys. And it was the disposal of these various comestible dainties and oddments which comprised Chickett's idea of business and trade. How Mrs. Chickett's, whose connections were something in the city, ever came to be deluded into uniting her destinies to a milkman, the aspirations of whose soul never soared above bundles of celery, cheap beef sausages and saveloys, was one of the indissoluble enigmas of her blighted life. But to make up for this, Mrs. Chickett's had gone to a neighbouring news vendors and stationers and selected a card stamped in relief with a floral design, in the midst of which the word apartments was printed in conspicuous characters. And this card the lady of the house had conspicuously displayed in the balconied window of her first-floor front room. We are quite aware that the letter or letteress of apartments is a character acknaid in fiction and worn in fact, a character as denuded of its pristine gloss and freshness as is the worn and shiny black satin in which from time immemorial fictionists have described her to flaunt, which usually, like herself, has outlived the splendours of its palmier days. In short, that of Mrs. Chickett's, being a character observable in almost every London street, 
is one on which it is quite unnecessary for us to dwell. But at last, as if to interrupt the vapid monotony of her existence, there came a bright red-letter day in Mrs. Chickett's life. A stranger presented himself at Mrs. Chickett's front door, desired to be shown the apartment in the window of which the card aforesaid was displayed, and then and there, without any chaffering or demur, agreed to pay Mrs. Chickett's price and become tenant of Mrs. Chickett's first-floor front room. The stranger, who gave his name as Captain West, but who, in fact, was no other than our acquaintance, Colonel Van der Muelen of New York, paid a week's rent down and signified his desire to enter on his tenancy that very same afternoon. In due time, Mrs. Chickett's new lodger arrived in a cab followed by another cab conveying an imposing load of boxes and trunks, most of which were mere empty dummies filled with rubbish to give them weight, for, as we have already noticed, the colonel's travelling equipment was a most meagre quantity. But as to the exterior person of Mrs. Chickett's new lodger, from the individual whom we know as Colonel Van der Mulen, it was marvellously and wondrously transformed, so wondrously that neither you or I, my reader, however his American speech might have betrayed him to quick and practised ears, would for one moment have recognised the New York Heinrich Van der Mulen in the guise of the English Captain West. But perhaps it was the well-dressed exterior of this imposing personality that impressed and so affected Mrs. Chickett's mind. You might have taken Captain West for a British peer. You might have taken him for a member of the Imperial Parliament. You might have taken him for an ultra-beau. You might have taken him for some first-water swell. But there was one thing you would never have taken him for, you would never have taken him for just what he was. You would never have suspected Captain West, neither did Mrs. Chickett's, to be Colonel Van der Mulen, private detective of New York. Within three hours of the arrival of the new guest, Mrs. Chickett's had flown around with the burning words of gossip upon her tongue, and all her friends had heard of Mrs. Chickett's wonderful new guest. That the new lodger had just arrived in England she knew, for he said so, and he came from near the Parliament houses. He was a perfect gentleman, Mrs. Chickett said, somehow connected with the government, she thought. Indeed, she didn't know that he mightn't be something to do with royalty itself. That was the exultingly highly coloured account Mrs. Chickett's gave her gossiping connection of her new lodger, Captain West. As to poor Chickett's, he, in the meantime, had sunk in her eyes to the level of the veriest worm. Having told our reader, en passant, what Mrs. Chickett's thought of her new lodger, we will take a cursory look at Captain West himself, in his new home, on our own account, and leave out of the question Mrs. Chickett's high-flown, over-glowing and over-painted ideas. 
in the craftiness of her heart and the worldly wisdom of her profession and alas that we might add it too often of her sex mrs chickets had asked her applicant about one-third more money for the weekly rental for the dingy musty worn front room than she could quite well have taken thus leaving a margin for the expected come-down but the applicant required various extras here and others there which ran the rent up considerably above what mrs chickets had asked and even then as compared to what the new york detective had been paying for the simple privilege of having a roof over his head and a floor under his feet in his own city he thought he was housed on quite moderate terms but what mrs chickets did not know was that if she had asked double what she did for the privilege of entering her front door it would have been cheerfully paid but as for colonel van der Meulen, alias and as we will for the present call him captain west although the same heart beat within the same frame and the same acute brain worked under the same crown the outward man was metamorphosed to an amusing and surprising degree a head of iron-grey hair well brushed and fashionably curled betokened an intimate and very frequent acquaintance with the perruquier's heart while round about the lower part of his visage all or most of the growth which nature had implanted there had disappeared and in its place with a rapidity which would have put all the advertised air-restoring marvels of commerce to the blush in the same short space of one day there had sprung a growth upon his upper lip which would have done credit to the application of cosmetics and the cultivation of years by some apparently phenomenal and rapid physical change in his constitution the pale sallow face of the new yorker had suddenly assumed as if rejuvenated by the draughts of some wondrous elixir a ruddy and healthful glow then whereas the sight of colonel van der Meulen of new york was not only good but his enemies thought a deal too sharp for their benefit captain west found it necessary to keep dangling round his neck by a tiny fine gold chain or now and again perching upon his nose a double eyeglass mounted and rimmed in a massive setting of gold in exchange for the eminently quiet and unpretending style of colonel van der Meulen's dress captain west appeared usually in a frock coat of a conspicuous mixture of light colours while his understandings were covered with cloth of a marvellous plaid in the selection of which good taste never certainly had been allowed to put in a word to this was added a gaudy necktie gaiters of spotless white peeping down over his patent leather boots while this whole magnificent person was ornamented with a profuse wealth of gaudy and costly jewels mrs chickett's mounted apology upon apology for the inadequacy of her accommodation to the requirements of such a perfect gentleman as captain west appeared to be
and at the dingy atmosphere of a room, but then, as Mrs. Chickett said, they were mostly old family things. Doubtless they were old, prematurely aged by Mrs. Chickett's preference for the exercise of her tongue to the labour of her hands. As one day after another wore on, Captain West's principal occupation seemed, as far as Mrs. Chickett's could ascertain, writing in his room, for he seldom left it during the day. But had Mrs. Chickett's been more intimate with the private life of her new lodger, if only indeed as intimate as we are, she would have discovered that Captain West's almost constant employment was the careful study through the medium of a powerful pair of binocular fields or opera glasses, apparently of some individual who occupied a house in full view of the captain's window. In the close observation of this individual, whoever he might be, Captain West seemed as alert, as eager, as deeply and intensely interested as a cat or a leopard would have been in watching its prey or as an enthusiastic star-gazer would have been when on the lookout for some expected comet or some lost and errant star. After several days of intent observation, Captain West had grown familiar with all the movements and habits of, if we may so express it, the daily existence of the lost or wandering star. But what seemed to Captain West a remarkable thing was that the star never ventured out except at night. It is quite true, as we all know, that stars do commonly appear only at night, but then what we are likening to a star here was a human being, and the human being only ventured out of doors at night. But still, by close observation and study through his binoculars, apart from what he saw at night, Captain West became wonderfully familiar with even the internal domestic life, if domestic life the living of one man alone in one or two rooms be worthy to be called, of his man by day. But like the bats and the owls, this mysterious individual seemed almost entirely nocturnal in the habits of his life. Nightly, no sooner did darkness set in than he sallied forth, and then Captain West sallied forth too. He usually shadowed his mysterious game into a labyrinth of courts and streets, which metropolitan improvements have since wiped away in the vicinity of Leicester Square, and then all shadow or trace for the time being was usually lost. Another time, after this, and after having missed the scent and sight of his quarry, Captain West succeeded in making his way again behind the scenes of the great theatre in Leicester Square, and there, in the midst of that strangely motley and miscellaneous assembly, human brute and supernatural, but still all human, would he see the same face, the same form that he believed was no other than either still living Bertram Gonod of Vernwood, or the mysterious Merville Garnier, whom only seven days before he had believed to be living or pending even twixt death and life in New York. 
strange as it was impenetrable as seemed the mystery of that life the new york detective had no thought that even if others were deceiving him he was labouring under any delusion or that by himself he was being deceived no colonel van der Mulen had too much confidence in his own intelligence for that the sight of merville garnier bertram gonald or whoever he might be in new york and again in london seen with his own eyes assured him as no words of dr Sirius wells or any one else could have assured him that far from being murdered this man was still in life End of section 24